Well, again, uh, good morning, Anthem Church. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis 39. And so you can see we got the horse trough filled up today. You're going to get to see another baptism, which is just so much fun. It's been kind of become commonplace around here. Um, and I can't wait for you to hear that testimony. But we're going to be studying Genesis 39, continuing in the, the narrative of Joseph's life. And so invite you to open up there. And by way of like kind of opening illustration, Christmas season, you see the gifts up here on stage. It is like the, the season of giving. And so gifts are awesome, but some gifts come with a level of stewardship required, meaning some gifts you just get to enjoy. It's just for you. Like, you know, when my stocking is stuffed with beef jerky, I don't know why. That's, I love that. Mother-in-law loves to bless with beef jerky. That's just a gift you just get to enjoy. But some gifts have like a level of stewardship. And some things we have, think of this. You see those car commercials with the, the, the red bows tied around the cars? I don't know who gets those, but let's just say hypothetically, you get one, and it's not some like two-door coupe or anything like that. Now, it's like a truck, right? And so imagine that. So here's some truck keys. Imagine for Christmas, if you will, somebody's like, hey, you get a truck, and you're like, I already got one. Well, okay, Justin, just play with me, though. Like, like imagine this, okay? Work with me. Like, you get the truck, and some of you college students are like, well, that would be an upgrade. Yes. So you get a truck, but any current truck owner knows what that means if you get a truck. Some of them are smiling already. Because if you get a truck, it has a level of, uh, of responsibility that comes with it. See, some days, if you're a truck owner, it's windows down, four-wheel drive, cruising, off-roading, enjoyable. Many days, though, as a truck owner, is spent hauling stuff around for friends or for friends of friends because they know you have a truck, okay? I assure you, if you go to this church, we know you have a truck. And probably one of our coordinators has already, like, reached out to you to use your truck. That's just what comes with the territory. And so if somebody says, here, here's a truck, my only request is that you steward it well, that you be generous with it, okay? That's going to come with a level of responsibility. There's going to be the good, free times, but then there's going to be the times where, again, you're helping out. Now, a lot of people, like, you're not going to own a truck anytime soon, and to which, like, that might not be the worst thing. But all of us have been entrusted with a gift from God. And like the illustration, we're asked to steward it. And steward it accordingly. And you can do it with a level of bitterness or begrudgingly or with a level of joy. And again, in the illustration, true to truck ownership, it was just a couple weeks ago that one of our members was asked to use his truck by a friend of a friend to, you know, go do one of those one-hour projects that turns into four to six hours of going around and around. And again, in that time, you can either choose to have a level of joy, like, thank you, God, you gave me a truck to steward, or you can choose a level of bitterness. And I'm saying, like that, we've all been given a gift from God. It's not like the beef jerky where you just get to enjoy it selfishly by yourself. But it's one that we're called to steward. And we can respond, and we can either respond with a level of bitterness or in faith with thanksgiving. And we're going to see in our narrative the proper response in those times. And so Genesis chapter 39, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Reading out of the ESV, it says this. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, 
an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of, of his Egyptian master. Let's stop there. If you missed some of the earlier parts of Joseph's life, he is born into quite a dysfunctional family. All right, his father chose one wife, got another wife, and then servants, and there's kids galore. But Joseph, he's, he's been, he's looked on with favor, and his brothers got so envious of him, they attempted to kill him, to which to say, no, let's not kill him. That doesn't profit us. Let's just sell him into slavery. And so we pick up the narrative where here Joseph is being sold, and who buys him? It's Potiphar. And who is Potiphar? It says there in verse 1, He's an officer of Pharaoh, and not just any officer. He is the captain of the guard, that who which would look over Pharaoh and guard Pharaoh. I don't know if you know this, but people that are like on the safety team or, or people that are in kind of law enforcement, a guard especially, he probably would have been a pretty good reader of people. Just this ability to, to like, and he would have had his guard up, right? He's protecting Pharaoh, and so he would have likely known how to protect himself and hold his own. You can imagine what perhaps the chief person, the leader of the guards, look like. I'm guessing Potiphar was a bit of like a physical like specimen, right? Because if Pharaoh's saying, hey, you're going to be the captain of the guard, my guess is Potiphar is like the guard of guards. And here, Joseph comes into his house, and Joseph gets entrusted. He doesn't get to just, I mean, Joseph could have been sent to like grind like corn at the feed mill or something like that. But instead, God allows him to land in this place. In verse 2, we see the Lord was with Joseph, and he becomes successful in the house of this Egyptian master. And I'm just saying, even in this dark place, it reminds me of the psalmist, even in the valley of shadow of death, God is with him. And here he begins to gain influence and see what happens in verse 3. Here in this spot, working for Potiphar, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in the sight and it attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge over all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Okay, time out there. All he did, all Joseph did, succeeded. Why? 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 Everything that Joseph did succeeded. Why? Was Joseph that good? No, the text tells us, no, Joseph wasn't that good. God was just that gracious. Even an unbelieving Egyptian can recognize the hand of God. And this wouldn't be the first time that that happens. We're going to see it later when Moses is leading out the Exodus. An unbelieving Egyptian recognizing the hand of God. And I don't know what that looked like for Joseph to just be so blessed that everything he did succeeded. I just envisioning like these guys going over to work on a wagon wheel. And Joseph's like, you know what you got to do? Just and succeeding in just fixing it. Or if Joseph's like tending some crops and they just produce. 
I don't think they had plastic bottles back then that they could flip, but if they did, like Joseph would have been really good at that too. Everything that his hand touches, it just succeeds to which Potiphar sees this. He's like, I'm not going to touch anything. It's like, Joseph, you just do it all and I'll just look for my next meal and where I'm going. Like which supper club I'm going to, you just take everything. In the field, in the house, you're in charge of all of it. I'll be the boss, but you're in charge of all of it. And I'm just going to worry about like where to eat. And I don't know if you know, but like really wealthy people, that's still like their only primary concern in life, right? Is which place they're going out to eat for supper. Potiphar would have been at that supper club. He's got nothing to do because Joseph's doing it all. And why is Joseph doing it all? Because Potiphar recognizes that God is with Joseph. And so if you're taking notes, everything we have is a gift. God is the one doing the work, and so God's to get the glory. And it's this recognition that everything we have is a gift from God, truly. Even the heat in your home is a gift from God that can be taken away by a little bird going into your exhaust pipe and making a little mud nest, hypothetically speaking. Happened last week. Uh, but it's a gift. Like, when you go home, like, God could shut your heat off like that. Your health, perhaps you've had that. Healthy. And then all of a sudden, you pick something up wrong. You're like, wow, my back is out of whack. or Whatever it is. It's a gift from the Lord. Your talents, treasures. Now, we do partner with God. And we put in a level of effort. But apart from God, we have nothing. Or another way to say it would be this. Show me something that you have something good that you've obtained in your life apart from the grace of God? Is there anything you can point to in your life that, that is apart from the grace of God? This is recognition. Mature worshipers can see God's hand in all things and praise him for it. And I'll say that again. Mature worshipers can see God's hand in all things and praise him for it. Talk to Mike and Linda Cox. They're one of our more senior couples in our church. Man, this is a beautiful home God's given you. Or you should say, this is a beautiful home. Mike and Linda will tell you exactly how God's hand was in it. See, mature worshipers can recognize how God's gone before them. And Joseph does that. He recognizes that it's God's hand that has made it successful. Potiphar recognizes that. So, Christian, I want us to respond accordingly because people are going to come up and they're going to say, hey, good job. Can you recognize that ultimately that belongs with the Lord? Like that it's God ultimately sh who should get the glory when we prosper. And that's what's happening here is Potiphar saying, man, God is prospering. And so do we want to just stop and like, instead of being like a window and let it transform like, go through, we're like, yes, it was a good job, wasn't it? Like, how ridiculous would it be to preach a good sermon and somebody be like, good sermon, pastor? And be like, yeah, totally. It is easier in that point to be like, yeah, praise God. But what if, what if when somebody comes up and said, man, it's a really good job at work, good job at this. Are you able to say, man, thank you, praise God. And put it together because it's recognizing that apart from God, none of that would have happened. And perhaps we get so insulated that we begin to think that we're actually the ones doing it. 
and it's recognizing that, no, everything we have is a gift. And a mature Christian is able to identify and to see that. And here's why. Here's what this is supposed to lead us to, is that Matthew 5.16, that people would be able to see that, that light shining, these good works, this stuff coming from us, and they would be able to look at that and say, man, praise God, your Father who is in heaven. They would, they would give glory to God because of that. And that's what's happening here with Potiphar. Potiphar is recognizing that God's hand is at work through Joseph. And so Potiphar is putting him in charge. And again, he's only concerned right now about what supper club he's going to. Now we see in verse 6 that Joseph, you see, verse 6, Joseph, as we continue the narrative, is noted as handsome in form and in appearance. Another way to say that is Joseph was, was both godly and good-looking. In fact, if you're using the, the King James Version, form is translated to godly. And so Joseph is like this complete package, okay? He's hardworking, he's good-looking, he's highly competent, and he's a godly young man. And this is likely, the author here is Moses. He's just no shame in calling what it is. He's like, he's good-looking, he's hardworking. That's who Joseph is. And Moses isn't the only one to notice because in verse 7 we see this, that after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Now, what kind of spouse do you think Potiphar would have been married to? This big Hulk, captain of the guard kind of guy. My guess is that his wife would have been beautiful. I mean, likely very attractive woman. She would have been extremely wealthy, been able to buy all the latest Egyptian fashion, had the perfumes, plenty of time to pamper herself. Her husband, all he's worrying about is where he's going to eat dinner. She would have had plenty of time to stand in front of the mirror, meticulously making herself look perfect. And yet, here she is, and we see in verse 7, casting her eyes upon this purchased slave, kind of this handsome young man, she's casting her eyes on him. A woman who would have, from worldly standards, had it all, yet she's restricted from one thing, and that's the thing that she wants most right now. And you don't have to flip very far back in this book, Genesis 3, to see the same thing. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve have been given all these trees, all these fruit, but they're forbidden from one tree, one fruit. Nothing would suggest that that tree is more beautiful or more pleasing than any of the other trees, but yet that's the one tree that they just have to eat from. I mean, she would have had this big, strong, likely handsome husband, but she said, no, he's forbidden. That's what I want. And so... She begins to lust after him, and she uses strong language. She's like, sleep with me. I mean, she's not saying, hey, like, let's lie down and take a nap together, okay? You don't have to study out the original text to see what she's really wanting here is for him to sleep with her. Who's saying this again? It's Potiphar's wife. I think it's worth noting that lust and adultery aren't exclusive to a single gender. Okay, that's just not a man problem. In fact, in 2011, this kind of gets confirmed. In 2011, a British author, E.L. James, 
wrote an erotic romance novel. That's the title for it. That's the genre. Erotic romance novel entitled Fifty Shades of Grey that sold over 125 million copies worldwide. Who's the target audience there? Again, lust, immorality, adultery, it's going to look slightly different perhaps for different genders, but nonetheless, it's an equal opportunity. Like, it wants everybody to be drawn in. And at the root of it, it's a lack of self-control. It's a lack of trust for God. And Potiphar's wife is saying to young Joseph, would you just lie with me? This older woman looking at this younger man, and I just think, our culture is caught on to this. How many secular songs kind of take that same vein, right? And here she is trying to seduce him. High level of temptation. But what's Joseph's response in verse 8? He refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put, me, uh, he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against, what's he say? Sin against God. You're following the, the narrative there, and he's like, I can't do this against my master, my master. In fact, six times he refers to Potiphar. But his ultimate reason in verse 9 is, this would be a sin against God. Sexual sin is an assault on God. Sure, it's wronging the other individual, but ultimately, sin and sexual sin is an assault on God. Here's why. In Genesis 3, when they chose to eat that forbidden fruit and commit that sin, it's ultimately an assault on who they think God is. Because what Adam and Eve are saying in that moment is saying, God, I don't know if you have our best interest in mind. I think that was the whole lie from the serpent was he's withholding. You're missing out. And so it's an assault on who they believe God to be. And they say, yeah, maybe God is holding out. Maybe God isn't that good after all. And so they take it. And so, so sin becomes an assault on God. And here's what it is with sexual morality. This lust is saying, man, what God would have for you is one man, one woman, for all of life, that would be what God's plan. And you start to think, well... Is that really God's plan? Does God have my best interest in mind? Like, I really like this person now. Maybe we could just be physical. That would sure bring me pleasure. It's with other sins as well, greed. It's saying, God, I believe Jesus is good, but if I could just have this thing too, then I would be happy. It's kind of a Jesus plus theology. And no one perhaps in here today is like, well, I don't want Jesus. It's like, oh, Jesus, yes, but if I could just have a baby too, then that would really like complete it. Or Jesus plus, if I could get Jesus plus that new truck you were talking about at the beginning, like if that wasn't so hypothetical and that was real, then I'd be happy. What it is, is it's telling this Jesus plus theology is telling God that he's not sufficient. Just like Adam and Eve, they're saying, God, you're not sufficient. I don't trust you. And so this sexual sin, Joseph rightly recognizes, he's saying, it would be an assault against God. I have to trust God in this. He's enough. And so Joseph's response is, no, like God is enough for me. However, tempting the situation, he's saying, no, I have enough if I have God. 
And I don't know what your situation looks like. And here at this point in the narrative, it just looks like an instance, and it's like, that's hard. But what about my situation? Perhaps you're thinking, man, what about the temptation I face day after day as I'm surrounded by a group of people that just flat out disagree? You want to know about temptation? Look as we continue the narrative. Verse 10, Potiphar's wife, she spoke to Joseph day after day, and he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. I mean, if you're facing temptation, Joseph can relate day after day. Can you just begin to imagine being a slave far away from home, longing perhaps for some level of affirmation. And here you have this woman who says you're beautiful and wants to be with you day after day. And this temptation, I mean, he can't simply go into the house and, and, and grab something he needs and go back out without, without this woman coming on to him. And yet, he keeps saying no. He would not even listen to her in this. And perhaps saying no is beginning hard, beginning to get hard, but I'd say this. Can you say, yes, God, you're enough? Because had Adam and Eve, when the serpent was talking to them, and said, you know what? God is enough. If they could have just said, yes, God is enough, I trust him, that would have functionally been a no to disobedience. And so, yeah, you can keep saying no, or you can just simply say, yes, God, I trust you. God, I trust you with my singleness. God, I trust that, that the spouse you've given me is the spouse you'd want, and I, I am committed to making this relationship beautiful. God, I trust you with the car that I'm driving. God, I trust you. If we could simply say, God, you're enough. I trust you. And not give in to that temptation. And we see Joseph here saying, God, you're enough. But one day, in verse 11, but one day when he went into the house to do his work, none of the men of the house were there in the house. And so she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Do you understand what's happened here? He goes in, and she literally grabs him and rips his clothes off of him. <laughs> now, I've seen people wrongly assume that when temptation continues to come up over and over and over, like that person keeps reaching out or that ex-boyfriend or girlfriend keeps reaching out, they wrongly assume it's like, well, maybe it's just God's plan. I mean, what, at some point, you just maybe this is just what God wants. Otherwise, why would they keep coming up? Please do not mistake availability like that, that God's hand is somehow in it, in that. That's not at all what God would want for him to, to go down this path, but yet people can wrongly mistake availability for God affirming it. Joseph, no, he's a young man. He's facing temptation. He said, God is enough, and he fights his way free, wiggling himself out of his garment, leaving his garment in her hand, and he's running out of the house. I don't know if he had other garments on, but it is very possible that he's running out of the house just butt naked, right? 
naked as the day he's born. He's just jetting out of there. You can imagine if like his servants are carrying stuff outside and they just see naked Joseph running past. What do you begin to think? And, and, and Drew Stevenson, he preached this text before, he pastor in Minnesota. He said, Joseph was willing to give up his honor in the sight of man in favor of finding honor in the sight of God. I mean, he's not looking very honorable, running past them naked. He's saying, I don't care what you think of me. I care about what God thinks of me. And so I'm going to flee from sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6.18. Because if he stays there, if he gives in to sin and says, okay, I'll, I'll do this. Man, if you've paid that, if you've gone that route, you know that sin is going to take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. That's what sin does. It's deceptive in that, and you don't realize the cost associated. And so Joseph, no, he flees. He flees from this. Church, are we talking about this? Parents, are you having this conversation with your kids? Are you having the conversation with your kids? Working in college ministry for as long as I have, realizing that Young kids are discovering pornography and acting on that, ages 8, 9, 10 years old. And it's just, don't make the mistake, parents, that it's a conversation, some awkward conversation, it's one and done. It's a continued conversation. Are you willing, do you believe that if they go this route and they become enslaved to immorality, that it's a bad thing? So are you willing as their parent that God has placed in their life, are you willing to have that conversation? Perhaps the number one reason you wouldn't, as a parent, have that conversation is because perhaps you're struggling with that yourself. I know I'm not liable to ask people about something if I myself am not doing it. And so I'm saying, parents, we need to talk to our kids. Spouses, we need to talk to each other. College students, you need to talk to your roommates. Proverbs would say, if you give in to sexual morality, it's like being led to the slaughter. And it kills you. Because again, it's not just a sin that's against another person. You're ultimately sinning against God. 1 Thessalonians talks about it's denying the gospel. If you would go out and say, man, you should come to this Christmas production. you got to hear about how God is good. He would send his son. He's a provider. He is so great, you need to trust him. I don't. I live in denial of that because I don't trust him when it comes to sex. I kind of go my own route on that. Yeah, I know what he says. Do you understand how sin is ultimately, it's an assault against God? And so are we having these conversations? Because if we don't, it's living in contradiction to the gospel that we declare. That's why we have to take this serious, and that's why we need to have conversations and so if you haven't had that conversation with your spouse, and again, that conversation goes both ways. Would you have it? Would you have it with your kids? Would you have it, students, with your roommates in connection groups? Because here's the thing. Satan would love for us to fight this battle alone and in the dark because he's nocturnal. That's his home turf when we keep things quiet and in the dark by ourselves. And he would love for us to just be enslaved to this by ourselves and die this like slow death in that, never experiencing the freedom that God would give.
Man, that is a lie that he would love for you to believe. That doesn't have to be the reality. There can be freedom in that. I just don't want that to be this acceptable sin. It's like, oh yeah, trust God in everything else, but in this, go your own way. Say, no, the Holy Spirit who's come to live within us is powerful enough to overcome sins like this. And so we got to talk about it. And we see Joseph here. He flees from it. He flees from it. Now, here's the thing. It's like, oh, he does the right thing. What's the response? Potiphar's wife is going to lie. You can see in verses 13 through 15. She lies to the servants, and we pick it up in 16. says the same thing. She laid upon his garment. Again, get the scene, this woman. Laying upon Joseph's garment. And and she had it until her master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you brought among us came into me to laugh at me. And again, we've seen earlier in Genesis, she's talking about have sex with me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. Joseph does the right thing, but yet is pronounced guilty before he's even able to give a response. And so in verse 20, we see this. Joseph's master took him, put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Joseph does the right thing in the eyes of God, yet is thrown into the dungeon. Virtue is not always rewarded with prosperity. Does that make sense? Virtue, he does the right thing, but it's not always rewarded with prosperity. And I'm going to draw this out. When you look at Joseph's life, perhaps you can relate a little bit, is there's some ups and downs associated with this. Joseph's born into a dysfunctional family. We're going to start that down low, right? Multiple moms and fighting and kids trading mandrakes so that dad would sleep with their mom tonight. Okay, dysfunction. And then God gives him this vision up here that one day, like, people are going to bow down to him. And he's going to be in this position of leadership. His dad gives him this coat and things are looking great. But then his brothers get jealous, throw him in a well. That's pretty bad. And then they sell him into slavery. That might not be any better. But don't worry. Like, he gets in Potiphar's house, and God blesses him, and things are looking great. But then Potiphar's wife makes this false accusation, and now he's down here again. Does that make sense? Like, this up and down, this roller coaster, and I don't know how yours looks. Like, maybe it's like, oh, I started here, and then, but like, there's this up and down motion to life, this ebbs and flows. Sometimes things are really good. Sometimes things are really bad. Sometimes you think they're the worst, and you don't even know that there's more to come, right? Perhaps you can relate to this, and I don't know, like, where on it. You're like, I think I'm probably, like, maybe right here. Man, I don't know, but if you look at it, this is what following God oftentimes looks like. There's going to be highs, and there's going to be lows, It's only the televangelist pastor that says, hey, donate to their ministry, trust Jesus, and things will always be peachy. That's just not true. 
That's just not true. In fact, you follow the life of Jesus. It ends with him being crucified, nailed to a cross. And so to think that as we follow God, all of a sudden we're just promised this life without challenges. And it would be just to miss what Scripture clearly says. Now, here's the thing, though, as you see this. So what does that mean for us? Is this when we're happy and this when we're sad? Because inevitably, people are going to come up to you and they're going to say, this is just the, the Western thing to do here in Midwest. It's like, how's it going? How's it going, Sean? And what people are asking you are like, where are you at on this? And so what if somebody finds you here, hypothetically, after you tried to help somebody move furniture around for six hours, you end up backing your truck into a pole, bending stuff up, hypothetically, and like, how's it going? It's good. It's great. It's great. We just lie. Is that what we do? Catch people in the foyer, like, it's always good. We're always up here. And in reality, no, I'm, I'm not. It's not what God would say is like, just pretend because of Jesus, everything's perfect. No, there are going to be those ups and downs. But what we see in the life of Joseph, that his joy is not conditional to him being up here. Like there can be a level of consistency because ultimately what we see in Joseph is his hope is in God. Who Hebrews would say, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, as he will be evermore. God is constant. Despite the inconsistency, God is as constant. And so if we put our hope and our joy is tied to our circumstances, yeah, there's going to be, we're going to be joyful up here and we're going to be bitter down here. But what you see in the life of Joseph, it doesn't matter if he's getting visions or if he's getting thrown in a well or if he's up and down. He's saying, my help, where my eyes are fixed, are on God. And we're going to see this come true as we continue to follow out his life. But it's this recognition that, again, that those who trust in Jesus will never be put to shame, that there is going to be this level of confidence that we can have despite our circumstances. And when you go back to the introduction, that's the gift that we have that's been given to us is that we can have a level of joy and hope no matter where we're at in this, recognizing that our response doesn't need to be based on our situation but on the person and the promises of Jesus. Does that make sense? And so what it would look like to ask this person down here, hey, how's it going? It's this recognition, man, situationally, things aren't that great. But my trust is in God, and he's going to work all things out for the good of those who love him. Not that this promise, I'm not trusting that I'm due for like a little uptick here, right? Does that make sense? Is your because again, if you're if you're here, you're like, man, the only way from here is up. I'm telling you, I've seen the bottom fall out further. And if your hope is that it's just gonna turn up, your hope is still in circumstances, it's not in God. Where's our hope? And we're able to in those moments suffer as Christians and suffer well, because our hope is in God. And if that's you, open the book of First Peter. He's not going to promise some good circumstances. He's going to say, let me show you how to suffer well because you can trust God is going to work all these things out, either in this life or certainly in the one to come. 
And so our hope, Christian, the responsibility we have given this gift is to be anchored in the Lord no matter what it looks like up and down. It's to say my joy, my hope is ultimately in the Lord. And it's able to not be embittered when we're down here and not to like take credit for when we're up here, but in all things, point them back to God. Because as God, God is just as on the throne when things are up here as he is down here. And we forget that. We think, well, here, God's working. Here, he's on vacation. Here, he's working. Here, he's on vacation. No, he's on the throne in all things. And it takes a mature worshiper and sometimes a little bit of hindsight to look back and recognize that. But you've seen that, and I'm saying we forget that, and I just want to beg you because I know some of you are right here, and I'm saying God is there too. If we would look to him. And here's where our narrative where we're leaving off, but look, even in this, as we end the text, verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph in prison and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that Joseph's and Joseph charged because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made him succeed. Mature worshipers can see that God's hand is in all things. And it's worth even noting God's hand in this. Joseph's punishment of getting thrown in the dungeon was not fitting for the crime that he was accused of. He's a slave accused of trying to rape his master's wife. He should have been killed. But even this suggests that Potiphar might not have been fully in belief of the charges that he was accused of. The fact that Potiphar puts him in prison. Oh, what? By the way, where's Potiphar work? Yeah, for Pharaoh. He's in Pharaoh's prison now. And so even in that, you see Joseph finding favor, God allowing him to succeed. Right. I love that he's a prisoner. And like the, the person there is like, hey, if you're in charge, I don't even care. Like, here's the keys to the dungeon. And Joseph's like, cool, this is my job now. And he just goes about it with such character. And so we see, again, not that Joseph is that good, but God is that gracious. It's the Lord who made him succeed. And so any good thing we have is a gift from God. And when we sin, we deny that God is sufficient. It's Genesis 3 all over again. It's a lack of trust in God to provide what it is that we think that that thing, that relationship will provide. It's ultimately fulfilled in God if we would do that. And so we must declare that God is enough and not do it like, yeah, God, you're enough and do it begrudgingly. But to have that attitude that God is enough, constant, with the trials and the change, understanding that God, man, he remains and his promises are true. So I don't know where you're at today on this. I'm just saying this is likely the lot for our lives. But we don't have to have our emotions tied to our circumstances. Our joy can be tied to the Lord. And we can understand this. We can trust that he is good even in these things, because he sent his son, Jesus Christ, 
to die for us, to forgive us of our sins. That's how we know ultimately that God is good. And not only did he forgive us of our sins, he raised Jesus from the dead, prepared a place for him in heaven and said, I'm coming back for you. So not only are you forgiven, one day redeemed to the Father and spend eternity with him in heaven. That's the God we serve. And so when we hit these valleys, we can remember who it is. And I do believe it's Joseph remembering the promises of God when God said, hey, you're going to be a ruler. Your People will bow down. So I don't know what this looks like, but I'm going to cling to that promise. I would invite you, Anthem, to cling to the promises. I'm going to invite the band up, and I'm going to invite Hannah up. Uh, we'll just use uh, worship mic, Nathan. You're going to get to hear a story today of a young college gal who's, again, her trust is in the promises of God. And, uh, and so I want her to get to share her testimony. You can come on up. And, uh, and she's going to get baptized here in just a little bit. Um, but can't wait. Uh, again, I think God's been gracious, and, and Hannah's probably close to our 60th baptism we've seen at Anthem. And so why don't you share your story? Hi, so I'm Hannah, and I'm a sophomore here at Mizzou. I've been going to Salt and Anthem for almost a year now, and I'm probably going to cry, so I apologize if you can't hear what I'm saying. Um, but I grew up in a Christian home, and I went to a private Christian school. I was baptized when I was in the fifth grade. Um, I don't remember much about it. All I remember is that I believed in Jesus, so I thought I should get baptized. Um, so I grew up in church. I had weekly Bible memory verses to learn, and my teachers would always point every lesson that we learned in school to the Lord. Yet, even after all of this, I still felt empty and alone inside. So I graduated high school, and I planned to go to cosmetology school, which was in my hometown. Um, all my friends moved away to college. They all went off hours away, and so I had never felt that alone before. Um, at the last minute, I decided to go to Mizzou, but at that point, it was too late to sign up for that semester. So I signed up to start in January for the spring semester. I soon became very depressed this semester that I was alone. I was working two jobs and all I would do is I would go to work and I would come home. I didn't tell anyone about my depression really because I didn't want to be a burden on everyone's life because I felt like everyone goes through things so I didn't need to put all my problems on them. My faith was growing further and further away from the Lord. So in January, when I head to Columbia, I find myself questioning my worth. I felt worthless and was looking in all the wrong places for acceptance. I was asking myself why I wasn't good enough, why I didn't look a certain way, or why I couldn't do this or that. It was always something. Um, then my boyfriend, Ben, he uh, introduced me to salt. <laughs> He had been going for a couple months at the time.
my first night at school, I met Erica, and... She came up to me afterwards, and she gave me a huge hug and acted like we had known each other forever, and I just didn't know why someone would necessarily treat me that way, because she had no idea who I was, but I really felt the Lord's love through her, and from then on, we were getting coffee and going out to eat, and she was always there for me. She was always there to pray for me and give me guidance, um, and after my first night at Salt, I went back to my dorm, and I just burst into tears, and I couldn't explain what I was feeling, because I had never really felt that before. So Ben told me that sometimes you just need to fall on your knees, <laughs> and just spread out your arms, and just cry out to the Lord. <laughs> So that night I fell to my knees and I lifted my arms out and I cried to the Lord. I cried that he would take my life and lead me where he planned. I apologized and apologized over and over for not loving him enough and not giving him my life sooner. Second Kings 25 says, I have heard your prayers and I've seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. The Lord saw my brokenness and held true to his word and started the healing process so from this point on I saw God work in miraculous ways he started healing my heart he started helping me forgive things that were said that I never thought I could he gave me a community that pushed me even closer to him and this semester I met Kaylin who is now my group leader she's one of my best friends now because I know I can go to her and she will always point me to the Lord she is so wise and has breathed such wisdom into my life, and she encourages me and loves me more than I deserve. So all of last semester, I was questioning getting baptized again, um, but I pushed it off because I told myself I've already been baptized. I don't, I don't need to do it again, and this semester just kept eating me up, and I just, I would see all these baptisms happen up here, and I would say, yeah, I need to do that, but later on, I would just push it off. So a few weeks ago at Salt um, Stan, they had risk cards for us, and Stan stood up here, and he prayed that if we chose one, it would be really what God had for us. And so I sat in my seat, and I prayed before I went back there, and I prayed that what was on that card I was meant to get, and when I picked it up, it said, get baptized, But I'm so thankful for the three people that are going to come up here with me because they've helped me grow deeper in my faith, and I know I wouldn't be here without them. They pray for me in tough times and enjoice with me in good times and always point me to the Lord's name above every other. So today I'm giving my life to him and repenting of my sin. I'm not committing myself to people but to God alone. People are broken like me, and people have broken opinions of me, but God has an intimate knowledge of who I am, and so I will listen to who he says I am. I will live for his approval alone, and I will not be determined by man's rejection, but I will let it lead me to the cross. 
So today I give my life to him and will every day over and over again. So um, what a powerful testimony of just the, the hope that is found ultimately in the Lord. And so just so grateful that some of you know the joy to which Hannah's testifying to, saying, man, God has done this work. And so she's going to get in the water and, and we're going to do baptism as the band plays and they're going to get to have a moment. But again, trust is not that this, the water is going to wash away sin. Jesus Christ, he has forgiven sin. And if you would trust him, you can be forgiven. And so he's given us a symbol that identifying with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So that's what is taking place here. But for everybody else, after Hannah gets baptized, we also have another symbol that says, man, Jesus, my trust is in you. And it's communion where you can take a piece of bread that's broken, dip it in the cup, signifying Jesus' body broken, his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. Man, as you do that today, would you just from the sermon, from the text, would you respond by saying, yeah, God, you're enough and take communion. And if you need to have conversation with your spouse or your roommates, by all means, encourage you to do that. Again, that we would testify with our lifestyle, the gospel that we say we believe. And so that is our response. And so after she gets baptized, you guys can stand up, make your way to the communion table. If you're professing Jesus, then come back, remain standing in worship.